May I speak to you in the name of the one who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so I'm looking right now to girls between the ages of 10 and 20. Especially you two. Okay. <laughs> Have any of you heard of Ariana Grande before? You guys know her? Okay. All right, good. Just checking. I imagine that you didn't wake up this morning and expect to hear a sermon beginning with a reference to pop culture, but here we are. So if you didn't already know I was a millennial, you do now. <laughs> Ariana Grande is arguably the most popular female singer-songwriter today. And it seems that every few months, a new Ariana Grande song makes its way to the top of the charts. And last spring, that song was titled Seven Rings. For those who aren't familiar with this song, the tune of the song is an interpolation from the famous Rodgers and Hammerstein's My Favorite Things, as featured in the beloved movie, The Sound of Music. The song follows a similar pattern. It's a long list of Ariana Grande's favorite things that include champagne, ATM machines and credit cards, diamonds, shopping, fancy houses, private jets, the list goes on. And one of the lyrics is, whoever said money can't solve your problems must not have had enough money to solve them. They say which one, I say I want all of them. Happiness is the same price as Red Bottoms. Red Bottoms is yet another cultural reference here referring to a pair of designer shoes that range from over $700 to $6,000 for a pair of high heels. For Ariana Grande, happiness apparently has a price tag. Last spring, Ariana Grande actually made an appearance in my final exam. I asked my students to compare and contrast the vision of the good life that is articulated by Ariana Grande in this song with the vision of the good life that is articulated by St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle, respectively. The question on the final exam for my undergrads at Fordham was to create an imaginative dialogue between Ariana Grande, St. Thomas Aquinas, and Aristotle, where they debate what it means to live a good life. You need to give me a break, because when you have over 40 papers to grade, I needed to make it a little bit enjoyable for myself. <laughs> the point, of course, of this final question was for my students to demonstrate the difference between a Christian vision of happiness and the vision of happiness that is entrenched in our society because there is a notable and drastic difference between what Christianity says will bring happiness and what society says will bring happiness. Ariana Grande's lyric, whoever said money can't solve your problems must not have had enough money to solve them, is but an instance of a wider narrative in our society, right? A society that tells us the more we have, the more we are. A society that tells us that happiness is found when we have a lot of money 
and when we use that money to buy nice things. Happiness is expensive clothes and jewelry. Happiness is luxurious cars and big houses. Of course, money is not bad in and of itself. But money allows us to construct personal identities and social institutions that make us feel invulnerable and ultimately invincible. Money allows us to create shields so that when we have the nicest clothes, the biggest house, and the flashiest car, we think that others won't know and see how deeply vulnerable we are. To be human is to exist in the most profound state of vulnerability and contingency. But this truth is too hard to bear. So we distract ourselves and use money to buy armor that keeps us from facing this terrifying fact. But Jesus invites us to partake in a different narrative, to live our lives in a radically different way. Our gospel passage today asks us to put down our shields and to take off the armor that makes us feel invincible and invulnerable, and to take an honest look at suffering. There is no way of getting around it. This gospel text is really difficult. And if I'm being honest, I struggled a lot with what to say. You see, there are several places in the gospel where Jesus seems to be enigmatic on purpose. And so it is up to the modern Christian community, and notably the preacher, to interpret what Jesus actually said. But Jesus does not mince his words in the gospel passage that we have in front of us. And so our task today is not necessarily to guess what Jesus might be saying in the hope of explaining away the core message of this teaching. Our task is not to decipher the meaning of the text, but to take this core teaching and consider how we might all put it into practice. In our gospel passage for today, Jesus tells a disarmingly simple and yet haunting story. There is a rich man dressed in expensive clothing who feasted sumptuously every day while outside his door a poor man named Lazarus is covered in sores, hungry, and suffering. The rich man dies and goes to hell. The poor man, Lazarus, dies and goes to heaven. And yet, to claim that this is just about heaven and hell does nothing for me other than ignite shame and defensiveness. I don't think that this is a passage that's just about heaven and hell, and that if you are wealthy, you will automatically be sent to this, quote, place of torment. As Episcopalians, we actually don't believe in this fiery pit of doom. In fact, all that the Episcopal Church teaches about heaven and hell can be summarized in one sentence. And here it is. By heaven, we mean eternal life in our enjoyment of God. By hell, we mean eternal death in our rejection of God. Heaven is union with God. And so this is not just a parable about heaven and hell. This is a parable about what union with God looks like. 
In a general and abstract way, we believe that the ultimate end of human life is enjoyment with God and enjoyment of each other. But this parable wants to create a much more specific and tangible image of what eternal happiness and union with God is. It is not lost on me that our gospel passage begins by situating the wealthy man at a table, feasting sumptuously while Lazarus is outside suffering. And I think that this image, the image of eating and feasting sumptuously is really important. Because this image of feasts and banquets appears a lot throughout scripture, doesn't it? The beginning of Jesus's ministry the wedding at Cana, is a feast at which Jesus transforms scarcity into abundance for the purpose of celebrating and enjoying new relationships among people previously unrelated to each other. And the end of Jesus's ministry is another banquet at the Last Supper where he breaks bread the night before he dies with his closest friends. Central events of Jesus's life and ministry involve outdoor banquets, feeding the 5,000 men and unnumbered women and children, telling stories of banquets, planning them, declining them, accepting invitations to them, attending them, socializing at them, the list goes on. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we are told that the kingdom of heaven is like a banquet. If heaven, the reign of God, is like a banquet, then the promise of Christian existence, this vision of eternal union with God, is a banquet without borders. A banquet where God sets the table and where Lazarus is the guest of honor. It is a banquet where all are invited so long as they come without their shields and present their most vulnerable and authentic selves to the guests already there. This is the image of heaven that we are presented with today. A banquet with Lazarus at the head of the table. And we are invited to sit next to him. But joining Lazarus at the table in heaven requires something of us now, in this lifetime. If Christ was resurrected with his bodily wounds, as is attested to in scripture, then the sores on Lazarus's body might still be there as well, unless we work to heal them now. For in order to sit next to Lazarus at the eternal banquet, we must be able to deal with his suffering. So we need to figure out who Lazarus is for us today and consider what structural barriers and walls keep us from seeing him, acknowledging his suffering, and working to heal his wounds. In our gospel passage today, the rich man uses his wealth to shield himself from Lazarus's suffering. He doesn't want to see it. He doesn't want to admit that it is real. And I struggle with this all of the time. Because in this story, I have feared that I am the wealthy one or one of his siblings. I am the one that does not like to look at Lazarus outside the door. Because looking at Lazarus covered in sores, so clearly suffering, is really hard to look at. To look at suffering, and I mean really look at suffering, 
and allow that to wash over me is terrifying. So I must ask myself constantly, who is the Lazarus outside that I am refusing to see? Whose suffering am I refusing to listen to? Whose suffering do I dismiss? When I actually look at Lazarus outside the door and allow myself to hear his suffering, it forces me to recognize my connection to him. When we take off our purple robes, the shields of wealth and status that keep us from seeing Lazarus, and when we sit down next to Lazarus and bandage his wounds, we let go of all of the things that make us feel invulnerable and invincible. And an ultimate act of humility and vulnerability, we acknowledge our common humanity with Lazarus. Sometimes I feel as though in the end, what I, and perhaps what we, fear most is not Lazarus, but ourselves, our fragile, vulnerable selves. We fear being vulnerable in front of those very people whose society has taught us to hate. We avoid touching or even seeing his wounds in fear that we did something, even inadvertently, to cause them. In fear that his wounds, that in his wounds, we will see but a reflection of our own wounds and in fear that we will have to confront our common powerlessness, our common vulnerability, our common humanity. Christ invites us to consider a particular truth today. Set down your shields, take off your armor, knock down the walls that keep you from seeing and looking at Lazarus' wounds. And when you're able to see him, go to him bandage his wounds, and invite him to break bread with you at your table. It does not matter how the poor beggar got outside. We don't invite Lazarus to break bread with us because it is an act of charity. We invite him to our table because it is an act of salvation. It is a foretaste of the banquet that we are invited to at the end of our lives. Now, I don't want to end by throwing Ariana Grande under the bus because I admittedly like a couple of her songs, okay? I like the current one too, it's really good. But today we are invited to consider a different vision of happiness than the one Ariana Grande and the rest of society offers us. To consider that happiness is not found in a $6,000 pair of shoes. Happiness is found in one another. A life well lived is a life lived together with others, especially with those who are marginalized and oppressed. Indeed, our salvation, our heaven, will be in union with God and in union with others. Together with Lazarus, we will eternally bask in the God whose love and mercy surpasses all human understanding. And so at the end of our liturgy, when our deacon sends us forth with the words, our worship has ended and our service begins, how will we go forth to meet Lazarus? How will we strip away the shields that keep us from seeing the connection between our humanity and his? 
This is the good news of the gospel today, and it is the challenge. We can use money to create shields and attempt to create a chasm between us and Lazarus. Or we can consider that our salvation and Lazarus's salvation are one in the same. Happiness is not found in those things that money can buy. Happiness is found in breaking bread with Lazarus at the banquet without borders. Amen. <laughs>